Good morning, Good Shepherd. I am Talbot Davis, whether you are live or live stream, I'm the pastor here, and however you're engaging with us, I'm so glad to engage back with you. This is the first message in this series called Dealing with Difficult People, a, a series I know has nothing to do with anybody who ever goes to this church, Dealing with Difficult People, and the first uh, message in the series is called Sincere Love. If you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to locate. Maybe your Bible looks like mine. Maybe it's lo- loaded on your phone. Either way is fine. Locate the, the book of Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, and just keep a finger there. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. A couple of things that we know about the Bible, or actually one thing we know about the Bible and one thing we believe about the Bible One thing we know about the Bible is that although it looks like a book, it is fundamentally not a book. It's a library filled with a lot of books written by many authors in multiple styles. And and get this, when we're in the book of Romans, it's it's not a book either. It's a letter, and I'll get more into that. But we're in the correspondence section of the biblical library. And that's just a fact. A lot of people read the Bible like it's a term paper, or you read it cover to cover, and that's not what it is, and that's not how to approach it. The second thing that that we have this deep conviction of uh, about at Good Shepherd is that we believe in leadership here. You may not believe this yet, or you may totally believe it, or you may be still trying to figure it out for yourself. Wherever you are on that continuum is okay. We just like to be honest that we believe here that there's no other library like this one on planet Earth. God breathed his life into its words. He poured his truth onto its pages. We believe that the Bible is inspired and eternal and true. And so out of that conviction, we have a custom that some of you are already beating me to because you're so eager. We lift up the Bible when we talk about it. And if you've never tuned in or you've never shown up before and you're looking at Bibles and phones in the air and you're just like, well, that's odd. You know what we say? It is. But we discovered that this moment of oddity shapes our identity as a community that we are a collection of people who do not have life figured out, but we know who does. Because we know who does have life figured out, we're glad to surrender to his authority as he has revealed it in his word. Amen? And before I say anything else, let's pray. God, thank you that your Holy Spirit, when he finished inspiring Paul to write the letter to the church in Rome, he didn't sit back on rest on his laurels, but he's still alive and active and moving. And so I pray that same Holy Spirit would fill me from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head with everything that is good and right and joyful about a living relationship with Jesus. And would he do the same with everyone within the sound of my voice? In your name we pray. Amen. So we are starting today a, uh, a kind of long series, like it's taken us all the way through May, kind of a long series called Dealing with Difficult People. And do you know why we're doing a long series on dealing with difficult people? And this is not a trick question, why we're doing this series on dealing with difficult people. You know why? Because you got them in your life. You were raised by difficult people. Your siblings were difficult people. 
You're married to a difficult person. You're sitting next in church to a difficult person. You are listening Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to a very difficult (laughs) person. You look in the mirror and you see a difficult person. Yeah, there are difficult people who are all around us. And so the question that we have to ask and the issue that we have to deal with both on a national sort of even a global scale and and a more personal one is what am I going to do with all these difficult people in my life? How do I deal with these difficult people who are surrounding me in my life? I mean, just think of how widespread this phenomenon is of difficult people. And it's a phenomenon that doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Like when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Academy Awards last year. I mean, that's one way of dealing with difficult people. (laughs) When Harry and Meghan and William and Kate, when they got their royal feud going on, that's one way of dealing with with difficult people, when politicians attack celebrities and celebrities attack athletes and they're all attacking each other, you realize we are living in the middle of a difficult people syndrome. And and when we're living in this land, you know, we're kind of in the aftermath of COVID and and we're we're in a a realm of of still some racial unsettledness and uncertainty and, and strife. We live in a day when the kind of stove you use or car you drive or sandwich you eat or in the last week, the kind of light beer you drink all of a sudden becomes a political statement. It's obvious people are way, way more difficult than they were just five minutes ago. And as tempting as it is to talk about the whole topic of difficult people from a kind of a national and a, and a, and a cultural realm, I, I'm not as interested in that today. I'm interested in how it plays out and how it's lived out in your life and in my life on, on, on the more intimate, familial kind of scale. I'm interested in all the ways that for you, family feud That's not a game show. That's a documentary. I mean, it's the way that that I'm talking about in in, in how all of these relationships play out, how all these relationships play out, and and it's the, the husband and the wife who just can't get along. It's the 10 year old boy who's watching mom and dad fight. And just pleads with them, stop fighting, will you? And then in the saddest of generational replays, that 10-year-old boy has grown up to be a 40-year-old man. And his own 10-year-old is asking the same question of him that he asked of his parents a generation ago. Stop fighting, will you? Why do you have to be so difficult with each other? Or it's the adult siblings who can't figure out mom and dad's estate now that they have found themselves to be adult orphans and they can't get along. It's the single adult 
who looks back in her life and she sees all these broken friendships and maybe a broken marriage or two and, and toxic relationships at work and asks herself, well, why do I have so much difficulty? Why am I surrounded by so many difficult people and never quite has the self-awareness to look in the mirror and say, well, who's the common denominator here? It's the little boy for whom love was conditional and approval was withheld until finally performance reached an acceptable level and then love got poured out and approval got given out because parents' reputation could be upheld. And they may not feel like conflict. It might not feel all that difficult, but believe me, it's felt. Why am I raised by difficult people who withhold the very thing that they should be giving out? I felt it. Yeah, so many levels, so many ways. We ask this question. We have this dilemma. What am I going to do with the difficult people in my life? And, and am I ever going to have the self-awareness to acknowledge that I might just be, I might possibly be the difficult person in someone else's life? And so in light of, of all of that, that's why we are going to be parking in this section of Romans chapter 12, starts at verse 9. We're going to be here for, for, for quite a few weeks in this series. And as it turns out, the, the, the letter that Paul, and you may know this, you may not know this, either way is fine, but Paul, pastor, missionary, author, and he writes his letters to churches about 25 or 30 years after Jesus died and rose again. And, and so as he writes this letter to the church at Rome, you just need to know that this letter and all the letters that are in the, that are in the New Testament is a real letter written to real people who had real issues in a real church that was comprised of really difficult, messed up individuals. It's, it, it's tempting to read Romans as, as like a term paper. Oh, what do we believe and, and, and what do we teach? And there's some of that in there. But beyond all that, beneath all that, the letter to the Romans is this living, breathing document where Paul has to kind of set people straight, a whole church full of difficult people, and he has to say, here's how you, here's how you get along with each other, folks. And you may be wondering, well, well, Talbot, if, if, if Paul's writing to a church, you, you, you assume at least some of the people in that church are Christians. Why do they have so much trouble getting along with each other? Well, when in Rome, as the, as the saying goes, and, and the city of Rome, which is where the church of the Romans was located, was known for rivalry, it was known for envy, and the people in Rome were notoriously violent, and they did not suffer fools, but they nursed feuds, and all that sort of ethnicity and proximity and chaos that defined the city of Rome, it crept its way into the church, and voila, difficult people who couldn't get along with each other. And so when we get to Romans chapter 12, you, you, you just need to know that Paul has spent the first section of the book, what we have is Romans 1 through 11. And again, I don't know if you knew this, but no biblical author wrote their book. Well, here's chapter 1 and verse 1. They just wrote, like I, if you've ever sent an email 
or a letter. And if you're under 25, a letter is when you get a pen and a piece of paper, put it in an envelope. If you've ever written one, you don't write them with chapters and verses. You just write them. That's what Paul did with Romans. Chapters and verses were added many years later to make it easier for us to read. And by and large, they have. But Paul has spent the first 11 chapters, what we have is first 11 chapters, first chunk of Romans, telling the people what's true about Jesus. He tells them over and over and over again, you have been chased, you have been caught, you are being kept, you are adored, you have been loved by the Savior, you are defined by the gospel. All this stuff is true. It's just this master pile-on, layering on of truth bomb after truth bomb after truth bomb about Jesus. It's really, really glorious. And then when he gets to what we have as chapter 12, Paul turns a corner. He turns a page. He said, okay, okay, Roman people, all this stuff is what's true. Now, here's how you all got to live. And, and so we, we get to go into this remarkable section in this remarkable letter. And it all starts with this remarkably simple premise. Look, look how it all opens in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, just the first part of verse 9, love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. Whew. I love that word, sincere. You see, in, in ancient Rome, there were all kind of statues, all kind of sculptors who were making sculpture. And so there was like a glut of statues on the Roman statue Market. We don't have an especially big statue market in Charlotte, but they did in ancient Rome. And there were so many would-be sculptors, so many wannabe statue makers, so many B-listers trying to act like they were A-listers that they put out all these faulty statues. It was kind of like generic brands trying to pass themselves off as name brands. But the problem was all the B-list sculptors, well, they were B-list for a reason. They weren't very good. And when they would make mistakes in their marble or in their stone, they would correct the mistakes that they'd done made with wax. And so that's how you, when, when you mess up in a sculpture, sculpture, Door, say that like 10 times. When sculptors would mess up in sculptures, they get wax. And so the Roman statue market was just glutted with all these B-level statues. And you could tell they were B-levels because there, was, there, there were uh, streaks of wax on them. Well, in response to that, the name brand guys, the elite sculptors, the A-listers, they were like, we don't make mistakes in our stone and our marble. And so they started releasing their statues with a signature that said, Sin Sarah, which means without wax. And that's where we get the word sin. Tell me that wasn't worth coming to church for today. <laughs> 
come on now. And that, that's where we get the word sincerely. It comes from, this is not fake. This is, this is the real thing. This is not B-list. It's A-list. This is not generic. It is name brand. This is real. And why would Paul, why do you think Paul would need to begin his address about here? here's how you get along with one another by telling them love must be sincere. You can't have fake love. Do you know why? You know why? Because there was fake love all over the place in Rome. Paul has to tell the Roman church, guys, guys, no fake love for you. Love must be without wax for you because fake love was everywhere in Rome and nothing has changed. Fake love all around. Fake love is the, the boy who brings home, the student who brings home an A minus on his report card and mom says, should have been an A. Fake love is the husband who only cares about his wife's appearance when they're going to a company function because he knows the prettier she looks, the better it reflects on him. Fake love is the parent who pushes and pushes and pushes that child into sports because the better they perform, the more that mom, the more that dad can live vicariously through that child and all that child's athletic success makes up for their own lack of it. Fake love are those pastors who look at congregants not as people of infinite and sacred worth, but as just one more, two more, five more numbers to add to their total. Fake love is that time that I realized I was a prop in someone else's life. I wasn't a friend, I was a prop. And he was propping me. See, I can get along with Talbot. I mean, I can get along with Talbot. I can get along with anybody. And I wasn't a friend. I was a prop. Fake love is when I have used kids or congregants or friends and put them in places where they were the supporting cast so that I could be the main show. Fake love is wherever it is that you use someone else as a prop in order to make you look good, better, or best. And when I realized that about fake love, and I realized Paul's choice of words, love must be sincere. And then I remembered, oh yeah, Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11. See, you not only got a lesson about sincerely, you just got a math lesson today. Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11, where Paul has been over and over and over again, Jesus, more Jesus, most Jesus. He's the one who has adored you. He's the one who has chased you. He is the one who has loved you into eternity. And then I realized, oh yeah, loved people, love people. Valued people, value people. Prized people, prize people. And it all leads to this. If, if you want to know how to deal with the difficult people in your life, if you, maybe even more to the point, want to not be the difficult person in someone else's life, here's what I want you to know today. That fake love uses people as props. Real love honors people as prizes. Yep. That's the difference. 
Fake love uses people in a way designed to draw attention to oneself so that we look good or better because they're in our lives. Real love looks at people, wow, you are a treasure. You are of someone of infinite and incredible worth. I have to ask you, how often do you look at the people in your life? Not as a prop. Well, what can I get out of this? How will this benefit me at work or at home or at church? But how can I honor this person as a prize who takes my breath away? I think I've told some of you before that my dad was not uh, the most demonstrative or verbal of people with his love. And in in fact, he wasn't even a little bit demonstrative and verbal with people with his love. And uh, he had been born a long, long time ago. and, And if he'd born in our day, we would say he was abused as a child. And so he had his wounds. And yet by the time that I came along, and I came along very late in his life, he was 50 when I was born. And by the time that I came along in his life, and I was like 9, 10, 11, and, or, or, or 12, and, and this is weird, but I was an only child with seven brothers and sisters because they were all grown and gone out of the house, and it was just me and my mom and my dad. And my dad had this really comforting practice when I was 9, 10. You know, the age of boy really needs it. And he'd be sitting in his chair, and I'd be on the couch next to him, and I would just put my fist like this on the arm of his chair, just like this. And he'd put his fist on top of mine. It was fist bumps before fist bumps were cool. And it was, and it was his way of, of saying, Talbot, your world is secure. Talbot, I marvel at you. you. You came along in my life when I should have been getting ready to retire. And I could regard you as an inconvenience, but you're going to get my best. Not my perfect, but my best. And yeah, that's when I felt and when I knew. Yeah, fake love uses people as props. Real love honors them as prizes. And I, I love that our student ministry does this as well. Our student ministry, every winter, they go on a winter retreat. I think that's why it's called winter retreat because it happens in the winter and the in a, a, the highlight moment of a winter retreat is when the students read a, a note that their mom and or dad or both have written them. And the reason that we do that in student ministry is because we're not building something apart from parents. We'll be, we are building someone with them. That perspective makes all the difference in the world. And so really at this dramatic moment in the retreat, there's a student reading a note from their parents and and it just is this vivid demonstration. You're not in this alone. You you do have to follow Jesus for yourself. You'll never follow him by yourself. And I just, I want to read one note that one student got, just a portion of it. And, And here's what it says. This is a dad to a son. My job since before you were born was to launch you into the world to make an impact for Christ. Talk about priorities. I try and be that example for you, and I know that I'll never be sure if I told you enough and taught you enough. I've tried to go by the more is caught than is taught mantra, so I avoid lectures. But I want you to see my actions, my work ethic, my care for your mom, and my service to others as a man you would want to be. 
I've been convicted lately that I don't do enough to lead spiritually at home, and I am praying for God to help me there. I am proud, so proud of you. And you see that combination of vulnerability. I don't have it figured out. I don't always get this right, but I, you are a wonder, a marvel in my life. And you know that student, those students had a vivid, vivid experience. Fake love uses people as props, but real love honors them as prizes. And it's not even restricted to family. Some of you may remember a generation or so ago that in the Winter Olympics, an American speed skater named Dan Jansen was the favorite in, in speed skating. And yet just before the Olympics started, his sister died. And so, of course, there was some conversation. Do I, do I race in the Olympics or not? Because my sister did, died. And, and Dan Jansen did what athletes always do. He, he raced because why? My sister would have wanted me to. No doubt she would have. And yet, racked with all that grief, Dan Jansen on worldwide TV fell twice. So not only no medal, global humiliation for falling in the speed skating. And in the aftermath of that global embarrassment, Dan Jansen got a letter from a young man named Mark Arrowood, and I want to read it to you. Here's what part of it said. Dear Dan, I watched you on TV. I am sorry you fell two times. I am in Special Olympics. I won a gold medal at the Pennsylvania State Summer Games. Before we start our games, we have a saying, let me, be, let me win, but if I can't, let me be brave in the attempt. I want to share one of my gold medals with you because I don't like to see you not get one. Try, oh, try again in four more years. And yeah, and, and inside the envelope was Mark Arrowood's gold medal that he gave to Dan Jansen. And don't you know that skied skater moves from humiliation to realizing, yeah, fake love may use people as props, but real love honors them as prizes. I have to ask you, how... How often do you use the relationships in your life as a way to make you look good? How often, whether it is with your family of origin, your extended family, your nuclear family now, your people at work, even people at church, how often are you wondering to yourself, how will this benefit me? And on the flip side, how often are you letting people know you you are a marvel in my life. You, you are a, a prize in my life. Even, you, you know, real love, real love is what you do for the people who can't do anything for you. Did you know that? How often for the people in your life who bring you no benefit, who give you no gain, do not increase your bottom line, don't make you more popular. How often are they the ones who receive the deepest of your affection and the most genuine of your love? How, how often, those of you, those of you who are parents, I gotta ask, you, your kids are in sports. How much is it to compensate for either the glory that you want to relive or the glory you never had in the first place. 
Real love honors people as prizes regardless of their level of performance. And for, for those of you who your parents are still alive, how often do they hear that, that they too are marvels in your life? They, they didn't always get it right, but by and large, they did their best. I, I assume there's a, there's a handful of you, your parents didn't do their best and the damage was traumatic, but for, for the the majority of you, you have parents who were not perfect, but they did their very best. How often do they hear that from you? How often do they know that from you? One of my most prized possessions is a note. We have two children, a 33-year-old daughter and a 30-year-old son. They both actually went to Charlotte Christian School here in the city and and uh, one of the reasons we're starting, we're starting a Christian school with kindergarten and first grade next year because we just want parents to have that, that alternative and we want them to, we, we want a place where we are not building something apart from parents, but someone with them. And at Charlotte Christian School, one of the great customs they had was that every graduating senior has to write his mom and or his dad a note giving some level of appreciation. And so... One of my prized possessions is the note that our, he was then 18, he's now 30, our son Riley wrote me, and I just want to share with you just a little bit of it, not most of it, because that's between him and me, but here's a little bit of what he said. I, Dad, I hope you don't cry as much reading this as I did writing it. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> but, but you're a good man, the best I know, and even though we argue sometimes... We have the strongest relationship. And even though you've never been in a fist fight, nope, and you never kick back with the guys over a cold one, nope, and you have no idea how to use a hammer, <laughs> nope, you're my best friend. To whatever, to whatever, to whatever degree I know about real love rather than fake love, it's because I've received it so much more than I've given it. And some of you may be like, well, what do I do? I, I can't do this. I, I can't be someone who doesn't manipulate and use people. What do I do? I cannot do this. Guess what? Here's the good news. You can't. But I know someone who can. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, it was not just to demolish the power of sin and death. It was to demolish the power of your manipulation and your selfishness and your inability to love well as well. Because Jesus and Jesus alone, as his resurrected life resurrects you, he and he alone is the one who's able to move you away from using people and loving things and into using things and loving people. He, he and he alone is the one who can get you out of longing for the applause of the crowd because you know you have the approval of the king. And he... And he alone is the one who can make you stop longing for more trophies in your case when you realize that you are the trophy in his. And yeah, 
when you realize that you're the trophy in Jesus's case, then and only then can you stop using people as props and start loving them as prizes. Let's pray. So Lord, I pray your resurrecting power would take every person here who wonders if they can ever love legitimately and well, and you would transform them. You would live your resurrected life through them. And so we would say farewell to fake love, and we would be able to live a love that is without wax, that honors people as prizes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.